Yo, Frankenstein raps in honor of Aaron Eckhart, whose career has had the least deserving decline into the toilet. I'm Katie Rich, and I know Michelle Monaghan is on True Detective, but that role is worthless, and she really didn't deserve to have a career tanked by Maid of Honor. Hey, it's me, David the Seven, and even though Matthew Lillard was great in The Descendants, being in Scooby-Doo really killed the SLC punk guy. I'm David Ehrlich, and I'm not sure if Matt, uh, Michelle Monaghan's role on True Detective is worthless. We have plenty Ouch. of time for her to find worth. That's We're only true. Two episodes in. Uh, but I am going to say, sadly, Nicolas Cage, who is clearly one of uh, our planet's greatest actors, if he is indeed of our planet, but has <laughs> uh, done nothing but dreck in the past few years. But I hear good things about David Gordon Green's Joe. I am Matt Patches, and my answer is going to be Jeremy Renner, even though I've been told that American Hustle should be a highlight, that it, uh, a sign that his career is not in decline. I'm thinking the guy from Assassination of Jesse James should not be starring in Born Legacy and Hansel and Gretel, uh, Vam- or Witch Hunters. Who cares, Hunters? Hey, this is Jordan Hoffman, and my answer is John Sayles. Once the emperor of American independent film, he's still out there, he's still hustling, but his movies get no respect, um, and it's a shame. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine, too, eh? Good. Then, well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 7 for Tuesday, January 21st, 2014. We are back on a normal schedule after some craziness, although there's still craziness going on because Patches is at Sundance. I assume he's hobnobbing with somebody or and or standing in a tent in a line at this very moment. You can Why really, can't it be both? It, ca- it probably can be both. He's probably standing in line with somebody very fancy. Um, so we're, we're off on our own this week. Uh, we want to thank you real quick before we get started again for all the iTunes reviews. You have been helping us draw in a new audience. If you haven't left one yet, what are you waiting for? David is – well, actually, David might show up at your house and beg personally, but – I, I have been known to sink far lower than that. That's true. If you go to Videology Trivia at the very least, he will uh, personally <laughs> beg you and then maybe steal your uh, duck buns or whatever else. So anyway, thank you for the reviews. Please keep leaving them. Uh, it help keep spreading the word, and thanks again. album because I downloaded it I think you know six hours after it dropped at midnight surprising the world and sending at least my Twitter feed into fits of excitement I, I assume you guys were privy to that as well last December um, but I started listening to it more regularly recently and I've gotten kind of obsessed with the feminism on it which I promise I'm not going to make boring for my mini segment and fact, uh, feminism is so boring I know everyone hates <laughs> ladies um but it's, specifically, this kind of goes back even further to when she announced the date of the Mrs. When she announced her Mrs. Carter tour, which was the tour she was on last summer before we even knew this album was coming. Um, obviously, Carter is Jay Z's last name. It's the name that I guess we didn't realize she had taken as her married name. Like that had never really been discussed before. And since then, it's come out that he also took uh, Knowles as part of his name. But naming it Mrs. Carter was this very specific move, obviously, and kind of a uh, an invitation for traditional feminists to be like. How, why is she promoting her married name? This is a very anti-feminist move to take your husband's name. Um, and then kind of throwing it in their face by continuing to be Beyonce, one of the most successful women in the world, incredibly powerful on her own, someone whose career arguably is going better than her husband's at this point, at least in terms of album sales. I haven't looked at Magna Carta Holy Grail, but I don't think it did as well as this secret Beyonce album did. Um, and then you get to this to the album, and there's kind of a lot of different varieties of feminism cropping up. There's one song specifically, um, I think of it as Bow Down Bitches, but that's not actually the name of the song. Do you guys know which one I'm talking about? The one that comes right um, after XO on the album. It has yeah, a, the, the one with the speech is the one. Yeah, the one about. with the, the one with a very explicitly feminist targeted speech about how women are told right. to aspire to marriage, yeah. um, and that's also the one that has the line, I took some time to live my life, but don't think I'm just his little wife. Um, and then there's a ton of songs about their sex life, which is kind of dramatic. And yeah, I actually, like, I had trouble, for whatever reason, 
I don't know. I mean, I don't. You don't want to hear about other people's sex lives. I'm sure. No, I most certainly do. But uh, and I think that this is sort of sexist, and it's all right. But at the same time, I don't like necessarily. uh, It's fun. I just in music. I don't know. I tend to appreciate in music when sex is sort of approached laterally. You know, when the lyrics are not explicitly not about, about sex. Cause wait, it, wait, you're a prude when it comes to music? No, not, I don't think it's prudish. I just think it's more interesting. I mean, it's the same. There's no, uh, you know, if you want to watch it explicitly in film, you watch a porn and that has its own function. But in music, there, I don't personally find any sort of benefit from just listening to, uh, like, you know, lyrics that are explicitly about sex. And I think that there are really sexy songs out there that are obviously about sex but are not as like as not limited in their interpretation as the lyrics on that one Beyonce song early on this album, A Drunken Blow. Love. Oh, Drunken Love and Blow are uh, very much about blow. having sex. Blow, yeah. And it's like, got, I, you know, What's that? But I, I was just like, in particular, I didn't want to hear, I mean, Beyonce is a beautiful lady, but I feel like, and I, 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 I doubt this reaction because it's like sort of putting her in a box and, and uh, you know, isolating her and saying that like she has to be the elder statesman of pop or stateswoman of pop and that she can't uh, indulge in the sort of, uh, I don't know, like a Nicki Minaj type lyric. Well, but there's I was a couple like, songs I don't that she very want. much sounds like Rihanna like, yeah. too. Yeah, I was like, I don't need this from Beyonce. I don't know. Well, I mean, that does, that's you just getting down on her feminism, David. You know, you <laughs> expect her to just be his little wife and she's not going to be that. Um, Did we expect that? Wait, no, I don't expect that. I no. Think- <laughs> well, I think that's kind of a very, you know, she brought it upon herself by naming her tour Mrs. Carter, and now she's kind of fighting back against, against the criticism she gets for that, where the idea that anyone would ever expect Beyonce to be just be anyone's wife is ludicrous. And what I think is fascinating about the way, not just that she took her husband's name, but is kind of flaunting it as part of her career now is that she's putting kind of putting a point on the way that that version of feminist dealing with marriage, which there's a lot of complicated things. There's no real easy way to deal with the idea of changing your name. Um, and I like that she's kind of pointing out that that was a flawed system too. And that to assume someone is being anti-feminist by taking their husband's name, by sharing a name as a family when getting married is really interesting. And she's kind of the I don't know if she's the only person who could do that, but she's the most powerful person who could do that. And the fact that she's like tackling feminism in these really complicated and not like not always necessarily successful ways. I think there's parts on this album that she kind of gets wrapped up in something and doesn't quite get there. But I like that she's doing it. It's kind of it's braver than I think she's getting any credit for. And listening to this album over and over again makes me think about that all the time. Well, I can't I can't say that I am an expert on all things Beyonce, but. I've given always thought her, that of you. Actually. I know, I know. This is gonna really disappoint a lot of people out there. But given uh, that, uh, given her her profile and her stature in our culture, I th- I always interpreted the idea of calling it the Mrs. Carter tour as sort of a uh, a knock against the idea that she would just or could possibly just be his wife. I think it just sort of it's much more. You think, it, you think confront- it's sarcastic? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's much more sneakily confrontational than calling it the. Uh, I mean, I guess you can't call it the the Mrs. Knowles tour, or uh, I mean, she could call it call that, but I mean, I was thinking that it's it's just even just saying it now, it feels so much less impactful. I think that maybe this is giving her too much credit. Maybe that she has openly stated that this was the goal. I really don't know, but I always thought that that was her way of. Um, bringing this to the attention to the point that we're talking about. But there's now. also a point uh, on the album. Well, I want okay, this is ahead, interesting because Beyonce can be one of two things, which I think is interesting, and that's why she sort of intrigues me as a pop star. Is <clears throat> her music career is definitely one of like perfection. She puts a lot of work into it. She works with the right producers. She comes up with a message. And, you know, this sort of Secret album release was a huge PR move and everything had a video. And it was great. But in terms of her public life, she's living her public life as basically the queen of the Jay-Z Beyonce kingdom. Yes. Like, it's called the Miss Carter Tour because, you know, if McDonald's and Burger King were to merge, they're not going to call the new thing, you know, Mr. Burger King. That's just not going to happen because McDonald's <laughs> is bigger. <laughs> I really like and, that analogy. Like, I'm, it has nothing to them as a couple. I'm really trying not to personally judge them as a couple. But part of the problem that I had with the Watch the Throne album with Jay-Z and Kanye West is that these are two guys who are... 
they're you know they started off like over a decade ago in Jay-Z's case rapping about what he wanted to be and now he has all that and so now what do you talk about and watch the throne is really disappointing because it's them just talking about money and women which is sort of what they were lusting at before but now they have it and now they want more of it and that's completely uninteresting to me whereas something like Beyonce is interesting because at least she's attempting she could just do you know who runs the world girls 16 times and sell just as many albums because she's Mm -hmm. Beyonce. But trying to communicate something is endlessly more interesting. Whether or not I think that this album is successful at that, I think is going to be up to each person who listens to it. But it's, I don't think you could listen to the album and uh, apply it to you without also recognizing that you are not Beyonce. Like she's speaking from a position to aspire to about how to be aspirational, which is an interesting positive positivity loop, but it makes songs about like details of her sex life sort of in a murky area where she's not talking to anyone. But then there's also songs about, you know, I've been home waiting for you to come back and now I'm mad because you're late and this dinner's on the table that, I mean, it's, in a way there's false modesty because there's somebody there to take care of Blue Ivy when Jay-Z is not home to put her to bed. But there's a sense that like, even though she's accomplished all these things, the amount of pressure that's there, you know, Pretty Hurts is very explicitly about that. And you see her in the Pretty. video. It's such a good song. <laughs> Um, and I think, I mean, there's a female version of that in that I don't think you can really be, I mean, you can be a successful female musician and sing about all the great stuff that you have. I think Nicki Minaj does some of that and there are probably other people who I don't know that well, but with Beyonce, it's really kind of being more honest, being like, you can accomplish all these things, but people are still going to give you shit if your body doesn't look the way it did before you had a baby and will still examine your choice of taking your husband's name. Like there's all the idea of that pressure. It's really present in this album in a way that it isn't on say watch the throne right but i think like the critical dividing line between those two things is that i don't believe that beyonce has those pressures i believe that really no yes i believe it's a storytelling first of all i don't think she had that baby but that's a different podcast all right let me let me let me finish the point being is that the what makes that album complex is she chose to um, reach out to the listener and find ways that sh- you could, you know, feel as aspirational as Beyonce. I don't believe that this is like, you know, the first Marshall Mathers LP where it is genuinely an album about him hating, you know, his ex-wife no. and about virtually nothing else. No, I mean, it doesn't have to be that confessional to be actually revelatory, though. And, and I, again, like, she's obviously a person of a very carefully controlled image. She does everything really precisely. But like you were saying, she could do really machine-made pop music all the time and not get remotely political. And she's doing it with this really interesting success. And, I mean, I think, obviously, as someone who is getting married, I have more interest in the name change thing. Um, and I, I just feel like that was the first time I'd seen anyone in pop culture address the idea of changing your name at, um, when getting married from a feminist perspective and not against it. And I did not expect to see that from Beyonce. I mean, not that I wouldn't expect Beyonce to be a feminist, but she clarified it in a really interesting way. Are you offering refunds to the Miss Baltus tour? <laughs> I mean, you can find me at Barclays Center next August. Uh, I won't be performing. I'll just be standing outside with a sandwich board. But it, it's basically what Mrs. Carter tour was going to be. <laughs> Let me hear you say, hey, Miss Carter. Say hey, Miss Carter. Give me some. Hey guys, this is TJ uh, at PoorFrisco87 on Twitter. Uh, I was just wondering what you guys thought about sort of what I've seen as the fall of the relentlessly positive or relentlessly negative movie review and sort of the rise, and I think it's had a lot to do with you know, online um, criticism of the more measured review, people sort of, you know, pointing out good and bad points and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I'd be curious to hear your opinions. Thanks. That? Oh, sorry. What were you well, I think we might be saying the same thing. Is the question is, is that true? Well, uh, I don't know if that's true. I, I mean, I could figure out. I don't want to get too inside baseball, but there are certain levels 
of like movie coverage if like you sit down and you're going to cover a movie it's like all the pre-coverage before it's released and then the review which is one person's final you know stamp on it but if you want to get into like deep reviewing and like fan loving and whatnot those things sort of echo out like i could still go and find you interesting conversations about man of steel you might not have liked the movie but that exists so i'm not i don't know if that's too inside baseball of an answer David, uh, what were you thinking? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I find as somebody who reads a lot of reviews and, and more uh, immediately edits a lot of reviews uh, from other writers that I publish on film.com, I, I definitely I, – I get a sense that people are hesitant to really trash a film unless it, it really sort of fails them in a catastrophic fashion. Um, I think that – the love it or hate it dichotomy exists and it grows more present the larger the movie. I don't think that's a particularly novel uh, um, perspective. I think that, that, you know, I think we've seen that for a long time that if you have like a, a dark night, uh, you're going to have people that are very splitly divided into camps and it's part of like a Republican Democrat national conversation. Uh, but if you have, Something like Listen Up Philip at Sundance that is just uh, letting out as we're recording this podcast. Not that you're uh, looking at Twitter or anything. <laughs> not, not like I'm ever not looking at Twitter, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, but uh, you'll see that people are a lot more inclined towards nuance. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that uh, I wonder if it's like, a, do you guys see like a herd mentality sort of thing that like people don't want to stick their neck out too far? But at the same time, critics sort of exist to be passionate about uh, the the films that they love and or hate and sort of advance the discourse in their own direction and and throwing I, it down the middle of the line doesn't really do anything for them so I don't know I think you do get a amount of the post chatter I mean there's a lot of complaints about how online movie sites are just like you're excited about a movie and you write about it endlessly and then as soon as it's out it disappears but I think especially right now where you've got people who cannot stop writing and talking about American Hustle and Wolf of Wall Street you get really fascinating reconsiderations and people who might have felt one way about something when they when it came out and being able to look back at it which really is the most interesting criticism like when you get a review from someone who's been able to sit on something for a few weeks, it's not always better than if they write it immediately, but you're going to get a lot of more detailed and, you know, your opinion can change significantly. And I like that the internet leaves room for people to do that, where they can write about something three or four times, or you can get A.O. Scott writing about Inside Lewin Davis four times, one of them after, you know, his tweet got turned into an right. ad. There's really interesting variations about the way people t- can talk about movies. And if it makes a good corrective to the hype that I think wears a lot of people out. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that that's one of the things that I just wanted to sort of reiterate that I think that it's difficult when you're on a budget and you there are so many movies you have to cover uh, and you can't – you can barely afford to cover – you can't even afford to cover really all of them once and you have to pick and choose your spots and then you can only really afford to cover them once unless, unless there's a particular angle that really deepens uh, – you know, that's not a review but it offers a very particular perspective on a certain film and, and I think that it really – it's unfortunate because it benefits the conversation greatly to have multiple pieces you know, as many, uh, on a same film. It's not just like, you know, uh, people want to hedge their bets if they only get one shot at it and they can write a review. They want to say what they liked about it. You know, they want to maybe put it down the middle so they're not on the record as loving it or hating it. They want to have a malleable opinion and they can pull in one or more directions as time goes forward. But I think that if you position the review more as a as sort of like a first reaction and, and had it more in the culture that they were, uh, they could expect to be able to comment again, maybe that would change. Yeah. I would say to, to agreeing with that, it's like sort of knowing the difference of why you're looking for that particular review that you're looking for. Like if you're looking for a measured discussion, that is only going to get better with time and it's probably not going to be on one of the, you know, breaking news sites or whatnot. Uh, everything else is just sort of like, <clears throat> I don't know, sort of judged by outlet. But the thing that I like, I like that our, you know, like week of reviews are sort of hitting middle of the road. Because to me, that allows the particular critic to be very specific about the path he's cutting through the gray area. Where I think it's really easy to, you know, Peter Travers all over it and call it a thrill ride roller coaster to nowhere or whatnot. <laughs> and it's also really easy to say, you know, like this plot point from Act One, you know, didn't uh, end up being anything by Act Three. So it, it, I think that the more 
middle of the ground criticism is actually where the better criticism is happening anyway. Yeah. Because like, I think it's going to need invective. It's going to get invective. I think oftentimes it's also where the more interesting criticism needs to happen because there's a degree of nuance when you're not calling something the best movie of the year or the, you know, an insult to cinema. I mean, I think that a lot of critics, uh, and I know this is something I've struggled with as well, when the opinion gets a little bit more wishy-washy and, and the argument really has to be distilled to something more particular, uh, it can the, right, the, the level of difficulty naturally increases. And I think it can also incite a certain laziness where if you, you're sort of meh on a movie, it may not – I think a lot, this is true for a lot of people – does not inspire your best writing. Um, and it just sort of like magnetizes to the middle of the road. Um, yeah. and, and so maybe there's that pull as well. But I think that like – Critics are also uh, – I don't know. I get really – you want to write reviews all across the board. I mean I think that if you um, – I don't know. I think if you feel like you're always writing reviews that are, are straight down the line, you may get overly excited to write a pan or a rave just to sort of break that mold and flex that muscle. Uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I wonder if – I'm sure Rotten Tomatoes or something would have revealing numbers on this. And I like, I, I feel like in conclusion, if it is coming across the internet has fostered more middle of the road reviews and more conversation like this, then the internet is doing something right. I'm glad that this impression is out there because I think it's easy to write it off as fanboy hyperbole all the time. Yeah. Is the Library of Congress still archiving tweets? I don't know. Well, if Probably. so, all your opinions are out there forever. Congratulations. segued away from the main squad, and we are now off-site in Park City, Utah. I Patches here with Jordan Hoffman. so cold. Sunbeds. It's actually not that cold. It's particularly warm, and it's frightening. This is the warmest of the five Sundances I've, I've danced at. Uh, I'll give you that. So if we don't sound as clear as we usually do, it's because we're radioing in from across the country. Um, Jordan, let's get right to the point. I actually think Sundance 2014 is an an improvement over the past couple years. This is you and I's, or you and my, you's and my? I don't Our. know. Ours? Yes. Uh, it's our fourth year. Fifth I didn't year. want to be like a pair. Fifth no, year. No, this is our fourth year coming here. Fifth year? Who cares? I, what I'm, what, what I'm getting at here is I had an amazing first year at Sundance maybe five years ago and saw movies that ended up being on my top ten list and years past have not been the case and this year i feel like i'm just seeing movies that are better than normal that sundance is getting a bit of a rep for having kind of meh quality titles and uh i think that this year is proving to be better would you agree with that i've been seeing a lot of winners uh there have been i've really only seen one movie i actively dislike and only and one that i was kind of met on um, let me get the one that you did not like out of the way oh i really didn't like i origins and i know that you liked it and most people did and fox searchlight liked it cuz they bought it for 3 million dollars this is the follow up film from another earth director mike cahill another science fiction e exploration of big themes and melodrama excess mike cahill writes a good logline but he's not a particularly good uh director his scenes are to me are very dull and drab and the film is very desultory and and i actually think it's quite dumb i i don't i don't like it i don't want to get into the spoilers or whatnot but i think um it's a you don't like it's a it's about tracking eye patterns <laughs> and how we're all connected would, because of our eye patterns i would like to like that movie i'm i love goofy sci-fi like that and i like brit marling a lot and and um i like michael pitt Maybe the problem uh, is it's not that goofy. It's it takes itself very yeah, seriously. It takes itself very seriously, but it's, it falls apart. It, it's it's it, the the big when the, the the movie wants to end with major revelations. Like oh my god, this movie just made me think about life in a way I've never thought of before. But the, and it's about these scientists who discover something about the human eye and evolution. 
but what's annoying Instead is that it ends like crash or something. <laughs> and then, it, but what's annoying is that it, 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 the big discovery they make has nothing to do with all the research they do. The, the real movie doesn't kick in till ninety <laughs> minutes in the two-hour movie. The first ninety minutes are are silly and don't really have anything to do with it. And they, the, if you thought, um, what's her name, Marianne Cotillard, getting her legs chopped off by a killer whale in Rust and Bone was a weird demise. There's a demise in this movie that is just absurd, and it, it just I couldn't take it seriously. So we have Eye Origins behind us. This is the stinker, and I've only seen one other stinker, which is Low Down, the the jazz uh, biopic of Joe Albany, uh, oh. starring John Hawks, and that is that was n- not good. That is that is miserableism um, without the Dickens flair. That is just Ooh. sadness, and it's a dirge. And I, we will put this behind us because I am being more positive about Sundance yeah, 2014. Yeah. You have seen good movies. What are these great movies? All right, well, why don't we go in... Um, uh, why don't we say what my top three are so far? Yeah. Um, in uh, what order? Okay, I love... Let's go with the big one. My favorite movie so far, and it's one that you've been hearing a lot about, is Richard Linklater's Boyhood. And I love it because I respect its 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 uh, chutzpah because it's a hell of a production, and I also just love the movie. Also, and for those who don't know, very quickly, twelve years ago, uh, Linklater decided to start shooting scenes um, with uh, uh, two actors: um, Ethan Hawke, Patricia Arquette, a young child actor at the age of six, and his own daughter who was around nine. Lorelai so. Linklater. Lorelai Linklater is very funny and very cute, and started su- shooting scenes. And would come back to them every year and shoot some more scenes. And he did it for 12 years. And the boy in Boyhood, in the very first scene, is six. And the boy in Boyhood at the end is a man. And it kind of ends, for me, this is not really a spoiler, but it ends with he's a character that reminded me a lot of the young characters in Linklater's first big film, uh, Slacker. So it's like at the beginning, he's a little kid playing in the dirt. And his mommy's picking him up and putting him in his car seat. And at the end, he's one of those jokers who's a philosopher, thinker, and slacker. And to me, it's sort of like he's become – we witnessed the birth of Richard Linklater in my in my view. Well, what's interesting about it, you mentioned that every year for the last 12 years, they've kind of picked up and shot scenes. But it's very much a written-through mm. movie. It has a beginning. It has a structure, even though it seems – I mean, this is a two-hour and 40-minute movie that has a clear that it's not a three-act structure per se because it kind of rolls with the punches as right. these guys grow up and they have curveballs and, and problems arise um but it's very much written through and well yeah. conceived in a, in a way that i was not expecting i thought it would be more like off the cuff improv stuff it's not documentary is, style yeah, it, no. it is in line with all not mumblecore like the before trilogy like days and confuse like slacker uh, Linklater has always been a very writerly filmmaker, uh, Waking Life also, um, but uh, this is a really big film. Like, I'm still, it's been a day, and I, I, I've seen other films since then, but I'm still thinking about that family, and I feel very close to those children and those families. Like, I feel like if I saw Patricia Arquette, I, I would give her a hug, and I feel like I know her, and I know that that's just the movies, but there, I've never really seen a movie quite like this, because... The passage of time. Ethan Hawke looks a lot different now that he did twelve years ago, and and it's uh, it's it's interesting because it's it's almost like the movie writes its own backstory. You know, often in movies we have to get through the exposition. Where are these people coming from? Who yeah. are they? So that a poignant moment in the later part of the film will make sense. Here, it's like we've gone through the first twelve years of a kid's life. Yeah. Now suddenly he has this profound moment. And we understand why it hits him, and maybe the person he's speaking to doesn't get him. Um, and, and I think that's really interesting, and that speaks to the, the, the profundity. Yeah, I, the I also think it's fair to say that anyone, it's an essential film. Anyone who's listening to this podcast cares about cinema. It's a non-negotiable. You must see this movie. Well, the, the interesting thing about Sundance and what you often hear from from the um, the outside is that maybe we talk these films up too much. Do you think that Boyhood... You know, it kind of blew up. Maybe people threw around masterpiece or something like that. Is there, is there a way? Is this movie going to uh, collapse under its own weight no, by the time not it arrives? This one. I don't yeah, think it can. Either. Uh, something like Beast of the Southern Wild, maybe because there you can pick that one apart. This one is infallible. This is on my top ten list next year. Uh, this is a movie I'll remember for the rest of my life. I'm, it's that freaking outstanding. And I don't think it can be really be described 
in. I don't think anyone could spoil it. I don't no. think anyone can really do it, justice. Yeah, to well, it. well, just like like some of Linklater's best films. Like, what are the before films about? Ah, a couple people talk, but they're amazing. What's Daisy Confused about? Ah, kid, last day of school. Um, it's it's a Linklater when he's really cooking with gas. He his movies are completely original to himself. I mean, he can make a Hollywood film. School of Rock is outstanding, um, but you know this is. This is an art film that is also a hundred percent enjoyable. Uh, anybody can like it, uh, and um, I think that uh, it's 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 also don't be. Fra- I was kind of nervous thinking it was going to be like really emotional that I was going to be sobbing. Me too. I thought it was uh, going to be like a tree of life existential. And yeah, it was going to be the hardships of boyhood. But this is very much the casual. It's- it's nature of growing up. Yeah, and it's pretty. The the kid has hardships. Uh, it's a t- he has a rough childhood um, uh, because the parents are divorced and Patricia Arquette makes some foolish choices with boyfriends. But but he's a smart kid. Yeah, he's he's the, and the, a the good point, kid. The point is, it's a positive movie, and there are some upsetting moments. But I was this is not a Spielberg film. There are no music swells and and, and crying and and embracing. The, the moments are poignant and they resonate. Uh, in a way that seems really realistic and not movie-like. And, you know, here's one thing we could talk about. The, the, you and I both said that we were worried that there was going to be some tragedy, that the kid was going to get killed or somebody was going to get hurt. And there are two moments in the film, one where there's some erratic driving and another one where they're, like, goofy 13-year-olds and they're playing with, like, a saw. And everybody in the audience is like, oh, my God, somebody's going to get killed with that saw. But no, kids do stupid things, and they're sometimes yeah. not. I wish safe. I could shake my own moviegoer sensibilities. You know what I mean? Right, that's I, exactly I, it. We've, we've watched so many movies, and I'm not speaking as a critic. I'm speaking as everyone listening here. We've all watched so many movies that we've come to expect certain dramatic twists or, or right. cheap cheap thrills in yes, a way that yes. we. And then this movie has totally been. sidesteps them. It doesn't even go for the milestone moments. This is not a movie about like. First kisses or first beers, really. It's just kind of like we do kiss, we do have a beer, or who knows? Yeah, what's really it subverts. Happening. It subverts every sort of screenplay rule you can think of. Um, well, I want to. I want to get to a couple other movies here. Yeah, and so, my, my segue here would actually be that I have a tough time almost putting Boyhood in like my favorite movies of Sundance so far because it does doesn't seem. It doesn't seem like a movie to me. It just like seems totally yeah. separate yeah, yeah, yeah. from everything. And uh, the one movie I wanted to bring up that has stayed with me since it was the opening night film, which is notoriously known for not being as good as anything else that plays after it. Um, and you didn't get to see this one, but uh, Whiplash, um, starring Miles Teller and J.K. Simmons. I almost said Rowling. Um, that would be wrong. But this is a movie about uh, a jazz drummer. He's at a Juilliard-esque school, and uh, you know, he has this drill instructor, basically. Not, not even a teacher, not even a conductor. A drill instructor who is, is pushing to him to extremes, into greatness. And that's J.K. Simmons screaming at him. And um, I want Jordan to see this I'm film so desperately. I want to see it. I as someone who has uh, fought the battle against BuzzFeed's hate for <laughs> jazz, um, you would really appreciate this I want film's to see percussive nature and um just the, the way it's directed and the, the way the music is kind of intertwined first with time it. director right uh he's he, written before but... no he well he he wrote the god i'm gonna look up his name in a second but he grand wrote piano, grand right? piano the yeah. thriller with elijah wood sitting at a piano um i believe he directed a very small feature before i'm going to look up his name but yeah it's it's astounding to see a movie that seems so intertwined with the music that it's exploring. Mm. You know, in short films, we often see a real heightened style. Like, you you pick a target or you pick uh, a motivation, a mood, and you go all in on that to kind of own it. And I feel like features don't get to play that very often. They have to go to scenes and they mm. have to go, you know, the, the, the And this is all the about... Beats. And this yeah. is like, it seems to be moving at a short film pace the entire time. And I, I, I find that quite... Yeah, it bugged me that I missed that, but actually the movie was playing opposite. And for those of you who have never been to it... Oh, the director is Damien Chazelle, by the way. Chazelle. Um, Those of you who are listening who have never been to one of the major film festivals like Sundance, um, part of the joy and heartache is that, you know, there are sometimes movies you dying to see that are playing opposite one another and you have to roll the dice. So I rolled the dice against Whiplash, and I ended up seeing a movie that I really liked, which is called Green Prince. And Green Prince is a documentary that rumor is is going to be made into a 
narrative film at some time. I did see, I stood next to Dean Devlin, producer of Independence Day in line in a movie, and he told me that The Green Prince is definitely being made into a feature film. So, just FYI. Just Scoop. FYI. Scoop. Scoop. <laughs> so Green Prince is pretty nuts. Uh, basically, it's a true story about um, uh, a kid, a uh, you know, young man in his early 20s, whose father was one of the founders of Hamas, which is the political organization slash terrorist group in the Palestinian territories that, um, and he, he, this kid wound up being an Israeli spy for 10 years. And what's weird is that he wasn't really, um, he didn't hate his parents. He didn't hate his roots. He, uh, wasn't, uh, bribed by money or sex or drugs. Uh, it was just sort of like something that he was talked into doing by this guy who was the other character in the film, who was, whose job it was, was to find, people to to convert and bring to their side. And it's the movie is basically two people talking um, with some, you know, footage. And it's just an amazing, it's amazing for two reasons. One is that the politics are very interesting about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And two, it's an outstanding look at psychology and uh, manipulation and uh, getting at people's um, uh, motivations. And there's still a great mystery in this film. So that's one of the other... I think the interesting other... thing about... Green Prince, and I, I have not seen the film yet, but it seems that it keeps coming up when I talk to other people about the best documentaries playing at Sundance this year, and it seems to separate itself because it's all—it's not just a great story, it's a great documentary. Yeah. And we saw another movie called Dinosaur 13 early on in the fest, which is a, like a good story and a poor execution. And I find that really fascinating. Is there something about Green Prince that makes it a good documentary? Yeah, it's shot in a very clean manner. Um, it's very precise. There are a few dramatizations in, you know, sort of the thin blue line type fashion, maybe one or two too many. Um, and it's just, it's just a really cool story and they tease it out so that every, and it's done like in chapters. So like it, every 10 minutes, there's a twist in the story and you're going, no, this couldn't have happened. That's crazy. You know, how did this happen? So I, that's one of my top three or top five. The other one I really liked, and you liked this one too, but not quite as much as me, uh, was the movie Frank which uh, was co-written by John Ronson, the, the, the uh, author and uh, novelist and essayist who did The Men Who Stare at Goats, and he wrote the book The Psychopath Test, and it's directed by a relative newcomer whose name I can't remember. Um, Lenny Abramson is his name, the director, starring Michael Fassbender in a giant paper mache head. Uh, Domhnall Gleeson is sort of the lead character. Domhnall Gleeson is sort of the Salieri to uh, Michael Fassbender's Mozart. Maggie Gyllenhaal's in it, too. A couple of other uh, guys are in it. And it's about... Uh, it's, a, oh, it's about weirdo. It's about weirdo. It's about being really <laughs> weird and fringe. Now, um, do you know off the top of your head, I can also look this up. Uh, we're totally unprepared. Uh, yeah. what, what is the name of the act that is inspiring the head? Oh, it's very head? loosely related to an actual comic and musician from Britain. The guy's name is Chris Spivey was his real name, but his stage name was Frank, like... Meathead or something. No, it's Frank, like good, good bottom or something. Frank Headbottom or something. <laughs> but and listen, I'm a very obscure artist from back in the day. Um, and the guy, John Ronson, he was once in that guy's band and he wrote an article for The Guardian. And then they said, let's blow this article out into a film. And really all they took was the guy in the head. Um, but but they, I think they took the vibe of that act, this counterculture, yeah. this this anti-culture in a way yeah. that, that's fringe behavior. Yeah, the musician is, um, you know, think of... Uh, the, what, but the, what they were talking about in the Q and A is think about people if you know them like Rocky Erickson, like Daniel Johnston, like Sid Barrett, the original Pink Floyd uh, guy, um, uh, Captain Beefheart, uh, Harry Parch, Moondog, people like that who are so on the fringe they invent their own instruments, they invent their own musical instrumentation, and the the, the gig is that he's in this band and they're absolute geniuses to the point that like they don't even record their music, they just play it for the heavens. They invent their own style of of notating the music. They uh, they like, play some serious theremin, yeah, which speaks theremin. directly to my heart. Like, like there's a part where they're play, they have like a bendy straw and they're like with a straw, and they're like holding it up to the microphone to get the exact sound of the straw. And they're they're opening the door, open and close to make a special sound. And Fassbender goes, oh, "I can make an entire album out of just this one sound." Uh, so it's very funny. And Fassbender's in this giant paper mache head the whole time. And it's 
very funny at first because every reaction shot is shot like a typical movie with shot reaction shot. He cut to Donald Gleason. He cut back to Fast Fire. He's wearing a big stupid head. And it makes me laugh every time. But then in the second half of the film, it actually becomes a very serious look at a couple of things. Number one, the way that we glamorize sort of the mentally ill genius uh, and how we sort of put them up. How on we should pedestal. probably remember that they're mentally right, ill. Exactly. Exactly. And then it also is a really interesting look at like commercialization and um, it's very much yeah. about social interaction in the 21st century. This is a movie about Twitter. It's about wanting to gain followers. This is like first, it's about selling out in a new kind of way. The first movie I've ever seen that has a Twitter joke that works. It's not even. It's not a Twitter joke. It's a Twitter through story, line. Story it's story about. Yeah. It's about this one guy in the band wanting to gain mo- social media momentum yeah. and that being the thrust of their music, not the music. And then they lose the counterculture because he's attract, he's seduced by Twitter. Right. Um, but it's not just like the usual, like, oh man, it used to be about the music and now you're not cool anymore. It's not just, it's, it's cooler than that. The movie's really quite good. You and, mentioned Harold and Maude when you got yeah, from this movie. And I think, I think that's a totally on point observation. This is about being offbeat and sticking to your guns, knowing that you are, on the fringes and seeing what's really there and being creative. Yeah, it really reminded me of Harold and Maude, which has a huge cult following now. It also reminded me a little bit of Michel Gondry's Be Kind Rewind, hmm. which nobody liked but me. Um, uh, and it You're remi- still sweeting films yeah. in your spare time. It reminded me a little bit of Submarine, too, and I think uh, actually the producers of this were the same producers oh. of Submarine. Um, so it's uh, it's pretty good. It, w- it will it will come out. At some yeah, point. it will come out, and it's not going to make a lot of money, but I think it'll... I was talking to... Um, a, a pal, and she said that uh, every, like, the coolest kid in every high school is going to love this movie. You know, that's that's sort of what's going to happen there. Uh, we are we are almost out of time, so you let's rattle off some... Love, what's my love is Strange? You like that one a lot. I love Love is Strange. Yeah. Iris Sachs' new film. I was not a big fan of Keep the Lights On. Uh, what, is that the name? Keep, keep the Lights, keep the lights on? on? Keep yeah. the Lights On. No, Keep the Lights yeah. On. I like um, Keep the Lights On, but it's... it's I, I didn't love it. But this is, such a, this is such a wonderful, yeah. simple movie about John Lithgow and Alfred Molina uh, being a married gay couple, and it's not really, it's not about gay politics or anything. It's not about being gay. It's just about two guys who are in love and have to be separated in New York. And I think... It's about, it's about older people in love and how... If I may sound really sappy, how the bond of true love can overcome all adversity. Well, I think that's yeah. why the movie is so great. It, it dares to be sappy in yeah. a way, and I, I it reminded me of Enough Said in a weird way. That just like it takes a chance on true emotion and older emotion, um, and what that really means. And I hope that it can find some mainstream love. Like somebody will put it out. Um, and be bold enough to put a gay romance out there. Because yeah. I think it'll really connect with people. I, I will be shipping John Lithgow <laughs> and Alfred Molina in real life forever. They're so. really good. Molina's really good. Um, and then also the supporting cast is really good. Marissa Tomei is really good. Um, and she's a great actress. Yeah, she doesn't get the... She's the, undercut by her Oscar win, which is very strange. That but. sounds like a future fighting in the war room I know. topic. We'll get there. Uh, uh, and who played the kid? I've seen him in other things. Um... Some guy. No, 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 no. The little kid. He's in. Uh, well, we'll write it. So we'll, we'll get D- there. Dave will write. The, <laughs> Dave will write the name at the bottom. But sure. He's in a lot of stuff, and he's been in a lot of you know popular films as the son. Um, what, and, one, one more movie with an extended uh, discussion here. Obvious Child is something that you and I oh, both yeah. really loved. And yeah, it's, and it's a, the kind of movie that probably too many people are make trying to make at this point, but still feels. Very fresh. Uh, it's the directorial debut of this woman, Jillian Robespierre. Jillian it was just picked up by A24, yeah. my favorite people. Uh, <laughs> What's, I think he nailed with Obvious Child. Obvious Child is the movie that everybody out of film school thinks they ought to make, and uh, they usually fail. And it stars Jenny Slate as, you know, uh, the, the, the girl trying to survive in New York. She's a comedian. She's trying to date. She's having a, She just was broken up with, yeah. and she's, she's trying to keep her head above the water. And if that sounds like girls to you then you need to see this movie because it's actually, I, I think it's nothing like, well, well I mean, you're surface out, level You're leaving out details. the major hook of the film. Oh, that's true. You're, she needs to get an abortion. <laughs> the, the first 20 minutes of the movie are, boy, are we just going to watch this funny girl wander around New York and be funny? And it's great. Which I, I'd probably be fine yeah, with. I'd be fine with it too because Jenny she, Slate is fucking hilarious. Jenny, Jenny Slate is, I, I'm, I'm sort of clueless about certain topics and I've never heard of Jenny Slate, but I'm a big fan of hers now. So the friend, she's a comic. So the first twenty minutes is her being a wiseacre and walking around Brooklyn and, and saying funny things, and then she has a night of, of passion. She finds herself in the family way, 
and she decides that she wants to terminate the pregnancy. But when she goes to Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood clearly read a book about screenwriting and says, no, you need a ticking clock. So they say, well, Jenny Slate, you got to come back in three weeks. So she goes back home and back to her job and, and, and stews. stews and the guy that she had the one night stand with through a is series, the nicest guy yeah, ever through a series of circumstances and coincidences ends up back into her life. He doesn't know that she's pregnant. He wants to go out with her again. She just wants to get him out of his her life because she doesn't think they're right for one another. Anyhow, he's very square and she's very Jewish and he's, the line that he she gives is great. He's like she. He's so Christian. He knows Santa personally. Yes. You know, that's a great line. I'm the menorah on top right. of the Christmas right, tree, right, right. burning down the Christmas right, right, tree. Right. So, uh, so it's a love story, and it's a love story that takes on abortion head on, and it is um, not. And I saw the Q and A with her, and what she said. Uh, I even have my notes here, but what she said was, um, it's not like the movie is loaded with anguish about abortion. It's not like it's so solemn, but it's also not cavalier in a macho way. It's probably a lot more like what most real women who have to deal with abortion well, I deal think, with. It. I it's, think it's, it's, it's dealt with seriously, but also with humor. And, and it's not like their lives aren't ending. They're just dealing with this problem. And it's, it's uh, well, you know, well, the right wing will go bananas for this movie. Yeah, they're not even going to notice. Um, if, if A24 is lucky, they'll make yeah, sure they notice and get some good free Put it on the Drudge Report. Um, <laughs> right. Well, what I love about the movie is that it's a complete overshare. That's how I described it while writing about mm, it. That it's, mm. it's totally personal. And I think what separates this from the Easy Girls comparison is that this is straight from Jillian and Jenny's brains to yeah. the screen. This is 100% them. It just doesn't feel like anyone else could tell this exact story. And that's what you need in a, in a talky comedy like this. You need a, a tremendous amount of personality, yeah. and they deliver it on all fronts. Yeah, I and, and Robespierre is a good writer-director, but you cannot undersell Slate as you need a strong lead to make a movie like this because they have no money. Uh, you know, there are some scenes that aren't perfect. I'm not, this is not a, a, a... They had enough money to buy the rights to Ross the song, Paul Simon. Well, no, they bought the festival rights. For all we know, That's they true. don't have those That's rights. That's true. Um, but you need, you need a... She's in every scene. She's got to be funny. She's got to be endearing. She's got to be sympathetic. And she's got to carry the whole film. And she, although she's been on SNL and Parks and Recreation, she's never been the lead in a film before. And she... She is a star, but is she a star, Bat Patches? Because she does not have, and I think Jenny Slate will be the first one to say this, so I hope I'm not offending her if she listens to this, she does not have typical movie star looks. Don't need them. Don't need them. Don't need them for movies like this. Don't need them for, don't need them anymore. I we're think beyond so, too. We're I beyond, would, we're beyond like that. So. Because no one, these people don't want to make movies that require that. And we're getting to a point where... I, I think we'll see, you know, uh, Judd Apatow is working with, oh my God, I'm, I'm totally blanking here. Lena Dunham? No, not Lena <laughs> Dunham. Well, but he has he has worked with Lena Dunham. Uh, no, he's making a movie with another female comedian that I cannot remember the name of that everyone will be able to Dave, Google. And, no, call um, Dave to put the name at the bottom. But, <laughs> Dave. Um, but, but, you know, these people are able to make them. If you're funny enough, if you're a personality, you can make these movies on any scale, and that's what matters. And I'd like to they might make that. a TV show. They might make another movie. Well, there, there are certain – listen, there are some reactionary jerks out there that won't buy into that. But maybe, you know, you've got to persevere. And I and Jenny Slate never got a nose job, you know, and that makes her great. And that may mean that she may not star in a Hollywood film too soon, but maybe she will. Look, yeah. we need a new Woody Allen. Right. <laughs> um, we are completely out of time, but yeah, let's, time. let's yeah. rattle off some movies and maybe one sentence on why you think they're good. Go. Oh, boy. I'm um, going to go first, then. Yeah. Lock, another A24 movie with Tom Hardy in a car, talking on his Bluetooth phone for 90 minutes, doing a car ride. It's amazing. It is a pinter play, Bluetooth enabled. It is <laughs> awesome. I loved it. Um. Yes, listen up, Philip. Uh, the the second one from Alex Ross Perry. And the third film. Sorry, I never saw the first one. I only saw the Color Wheel, <laughs> which is hilarious. The Color Wheel is nonstop comedy. Listen up, Philip is not nonstop comedy. It's actually quite dark and upsetting. It's uh, Jason Schwartzman as a, a writer, Jonathan Price as his mentor, Elizabeth Moss as his as his uh, on again off again girlfriend. And a lot of uh, Sturm and Drang, as they say. Wow. Uh, and it's shot like Color Wheel, that it has a lot of close-ups. It's shot on film. Good music. Sadness, and... the good kind of sadness. Yeah, good kind of sadness. Um, did you see The Guest? 
the new film. No, from, uh, I want to see the guest. Weingard and Barrett, yeah, the folks Wingard who brought us uh, Your Next, Your a next. movie I didn't love, uh, mm-hmm. unfortunately, but I really enjoyed The Guest, which is this total 80s mashup. It's like part Roadhouse, part Terminator, part Super Soldier nonsense. It's, it's, it's so stupid, but I had a ball watching it at midnight, so... Uh, any any others? Yeah, I'll give mentioning? a shout out to Cavalry, John Michael McDonough, the guy who did The Guard, uh, once again with Brendan Gleeson. This time co-stars include Chris O'Dowd and M. Emmett Walsh, who uh, really, this maybe his last film. He looks, Jesus! He looks really old in this movie. Well, that's a great way to end the uh, segment, calling uh, yeah. M. Emmett Walsh's no, death. Well, no, no, I hope not. I hope he lives 100 years. Uh, Cavalry is about, uh, Brendan Gleeson plays the traditional good Irish priest, and, uh, he's in a small town in, in a seaside town in Ireland, and, uh, it's got colorful characters, and it gets kind of dark. Um, so I like the Cavalry. Uh, and I think that about wraps things yeah. up on our Sundance conversation. Jordan, thank you yeah. for chiming in here. Thank you for surviving the, the altitude. Yeah, yeah. To, uh... Always a pleasure to be on Fighting in the War Room. Hi, Katie. <laughs> Hello, David Ehrlich. Um, why, why don't you do a quick outro as if I said, uh, Jordan, tell people where they can find you. Or, yeah. Uh, hey, who, who you are and then where you are. This has been Jordan Hoffman. You can read my work on the internet on such uh, sites as film.com, screencrush.com, uh, the New York Daily News, um, and other outlets. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter at jhoffman. Star Trek.com. I also write for StarTrek.com and no. uh, other places. And I am Matt Patches. I am writing across the internet. Who knows? And I've, all my Sundance coverage that we met talked about on the podcast earlier is on VandyFair.com and a little on Hollywood Reporter. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And I put all my shit on MattPatches.com. I've been trying to do better at putting links to all my stuff on JordanHoffman.com. And I did it for one week in January. The first week of January, I haven't done <laughs> That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. It looks like we'll be back on Friday with Dave talking about Yo Soy Frankenstein. Um, Just Yo Frankenstein. Yo, Yo Frankenstein raps. Um, I'm deeply excited. I have not seen this movie, but I'm very excited to hear this review. Um, In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm David Ehrlich. I'm the... (laughs) I almost said I was the CEO of Film.com. Wow. That is... is, uh, The power is going to my head. Give yourself a promotion Uh, there. I have given myself a demotion on this part of the show in recent weeks where I've just stopped saying that I'm the senior editor of Film.com because I'm the only editor. So to say I'm the editor of Film.com and you can find me and all the wonderful writers who uh, contribute to the site on Film.com. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich and at Film, D-O-T-C-O-M. I'm Dave Gonzalez. I'm the CEO of Twitter.com slash DA7E, where you can find all of my work, as well as uh, after every um, Sherlock episode, which is now airing for you Americans, I will be on the Screen Bites podcast dissecting those episodes. You should go check that out by search. Or, hey, we'll put a link at fightinginthewarroom.com. But also, if you want to be part of a show like today's voicemail guest was, you could give us a voicemail at 914-410-6450. And I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fair's Hollywood, where someone named Matt Patches has been writing about Sundance, so that's fun. Um, Patch Dance. It's been the Patch Dance Film Festival all week at Vanity Fair's Hollywood. Uh, You can also find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. Pretty hats, shine a light, come whatever's work. Yay! That was so necessary. I'm glad that happened. And if he stays, I'll wait for him in the morning. I'm a thousand pieces of light. If he stays, then I'll wait for him in the morning. I'm a thousand pieces of light. If he stays, I'll wait for him in the morning. I'm a thousand pieces of light. If he stays, then I'll wait for him in the morning. I'm a thousand pieces of light.